Let's go to Romans 12. I'd like to read verses 9 through 18. And the title of this sermon is A Community of Peace. And these verses, as you know, if if you're familiar with the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11, just this glorious, massive pile of doctrine that ends with this effusive worship by Paul. And then beginning of chapter 12, he turns a corner and begins to describe what a life of worship looks like. And in this section, he describes the marks of a true Christian. Verse 9, Romans 12, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Lord, thank you for this church, these saints who love you, who want to serve you, who are faithful. And Lord, I pray now that you would come and help us to hold up your word as a mirror by which we can examine our lives. Lord, it's our desire to be faithful. And so we invite your spirit to come and search us and to try us to see if there be any way in us that needs to change. Come, we pray. Lord, we thank you for the promises we heard in worship that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Lord, that comforts us tremendously. And so now, Lord, help us to look at your word. In Jesus' name, amen. When Jesus taught his disciples about the end of all things, he told them in Matthew 24 that there would be wars and rumors of wars until the end of the age. I personally, as an older person, am astonished at how at moments in my life it can seem like we're getting close to world peace only to have some idiot jump up in some country and we have a new hotspot problem in the world. You wonder, can nations get along? And it appears from a casual glance at the news, nations cannot live in peace. In the U.S., and I presume on your knowledge of our news here a little bit, we have struggled with racism. In the late 1960s, our cities were torn apart by riots. In 1991, the infamous Rodney King incident happened in Los Angeles, which was followed by riots costing millions of dollars. More recently in the U.S., we've had incidents and riots in Ferguson and Baltimore where police are involved 
and minorities perceive a lack of justice. Following the Rodney King incident in Los Angeles, Rodney was interviewed on TV and he was famously asked this question, can we all get along? We know the answer to that. The answer is no. No, we we can't get along. Our experience tells us that and our Bible says so. So Titus 3.3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. It's our life before Christ. We cannot get along. But you say to me, well, that's the world for you. I mean, that's the way it goes out there. Well, in a couple of books I read recently, the first one was by a pastor named Andy Stanley. And in his book, Deep and Wide, he recalls the church meeting where his well-known TV pastor, Charles Stanley, it's his dad, was punched in the face during a church meeting. I'm happy to say I've never experienced that moment in being a pastor. Punched in the face in a church business meeting. Charles Colson, in his book, The Body, recounts a story. It's chapter 8, Extending the Right Fist of Fellowship, where a fight breaks out at a Sunday service. Well, you say, that's the Baptists for you, because they're both Baptists. And I'd say, well, yes, Baptists can be known for fighting and arguing, Uh, Sadly, one morning at Living Hope Church, the church I pastor in Harrisburg a number of years ago, on a Sunday I was away, a fight broke out in a side room between two individuals, and one had a tattered shirt, and uh, I got news of it, and it it was both alarming and depressing and and like, what are these guys thinking? Like, we're meeting in a hotel at this point. Like, they could get us all kicked out of here. Uh, what, they couldn't wait to have the fight, like, off the property, right? They had to have it on a Sunday morning. It was the moment I thought we had arrived as a church. We were now officially a New Testament church without a doubt. Can we all get along? We know what it's like in a marriage. We know what it's like when we have children come along. Singles know what it's like perhaps to live with someone and to encounter conflict. Conflict is a part of life and conflict that happens in the world and it happens in the church. Conflict comes our way from time to time. What do we do when conflict occurs in the church? How do we handle it when it comes our way? And by the church, I'm talking about our families, talking about marriages, talking about friendships. I'm saying when conflict comes, what do we do? How do we handle it? My title again, A Community of Peace. I want to show you why peace matters to God and how we pursue peace biblically. I have three points for you in the form of questions. First, why are we called by God to be a community of peace? Second, how can we be a community of peace? Third, What do we do when conflict comes? So first question, why are we called by God to be a community of peace? Why does God give this list of commands in Romans 12? Why does God care about this matter? 
Notice the text once more, and I want to invite you as I read these words to think personally. I'm not asking you to nudge your spouse, to make a point. I'm not asking you to think about other people who need to hear something. I'm inviting you to think about yourself. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Repay no one, verse 17, evil for evil, but give thought, give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all, which acknowledges that it won't always be peaceable in the end. But the command is, if possible, so far as it depends on you. The reason for that is this. You and I, at the end of our life, when this life is over, our mortal bodies are no more, we stand before God. And he is the only one who will ever render an account of our life. Now, you may have people who don't like you. You may have people you don't get along with. They will never render a verdict on your life. Pastors won't render a verdict. Your spouse won't render a verdict. Your friends won't render verdicts. Nobody, humanly speaking, renders a verdict but one, and that's God, who will render a verdict of our actions in our life. So it doesn't always work out, but insofar as it's possible on our end, insofar as you're going to stand before God one day, that's the issue. There are no other issues but that final issue. In an ultimate sense, that's where we'll know everything that mattered most to God. Now it can be hazy, right? It can look a little difficult from time to time. We don't always know. I think Paul said, dimly into the mirror we look. On that day, we'll see clearly and God will render an account of our lives. So the text says, live in harmony with one another, repay no one evil for evil, do what's honorable in the sight of all, meaning, meaning always be classy and dignified. In every event, be classy and dignified and then live peaceably at all. Why does God give these commands? The first answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If I don't, I'm going to give you three answers, but if I just gave you this one answer, it would be a sufficient, adequate answer. Earlier in Romans 5, Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's amazing. We have peace with God. Having peace with God, the one to whom we will stand before at the end of our life, having peace with God is incredible. Because we certainly didn't earn that. The gospel gives us bad news first. The gospel tells us we we need to be saved from God himself. Because God is holy. He is pure. You and I, we we tend to think like this. Uh, We think there are good people and decent people and then really bad people. And we have a line somewhere that we think, here's what makes a really bad person. Like you get a hundred lies... And then anyone that lies more than 100 times, it's a really bad person. We'll call them liar. But, but before God, one lie makes us, separates us, puts us in a completely different position than God. Just one lie. Stealing something once puts us in a position 
where we become enemies of God. And the Bible says we're appointed, therefore, to wrath. We're appointed to judgment. There's bad news in the gospel before there is good news. However you define your biggest problem in life right now, if I would just poll, survey each one of you, what's your biggest problem right now? Where are you most challenged? Where are you most pressed? Whatever you answer, and most of us are going to describe some circumstance, whatever you answer pales in comparison to the problem of your sin before God. We don't tend to think of our sin as our biggest problem. We tend to think of some circumstance as our biggest problem. We pray about our circumstances. We we want them to change. But our sin is our greatest challenge. And our sin is against the holy God. And because God is just, sin will be judged. Because God is merciful, there's good news in the gospel. Offers us eternal life. He offers us forgiveness. Peace with God means I have nothing to prove to anyone. Because God's the only one who will render an account of our lives, because we have peace with that one, we're free. We're free. We we have peace. In Christ, we're free. Completely free. There's no burden on our back. It, It has rolled away. We have peace with God, and this is gloriously good news. I'm free because the biggest problem I have has been dealt with, has been solved. So when the gospel affects our lives, when we see that there was our rebellion and we were deserving of wrath but received mercy, we are then affected in how we deal with every single person around us. We're changed. Which leads to the second answer I would give. The gospel bears fruit in our lives. The gospel does this grace-filled work of transformation so that when you are born again, when you are saved, you're a fundamentally different person. The Bible says new creation. The thief on the cross was a new creation, right? Repentant of his sin, on that cross... Jesus says, you'll be in paradise today with me. He's fundamentally a new creation, and he worships there on the cross. Testifies to the grace of the freedom that is his in Jesus Christ. So this work of transformation happens, and there's change within us. And Jesus, who is our Savior, also becomes our example. So, for instance, in 1 Peter 2, 21 and following... For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Okay? Leaving us an example, so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile. Revile means to criticize in an abusive and scornful way. When Jesus was criticized in an abusive and scornful way, he didn't do it in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Make a note of that. He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. I point you again to the end of your life. I want you to know that on that day... Everything is made right. 
There's clarity on that day that we lack now. But Jesus continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, meaning he didn't take things into his own hands. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He died on that tree to save us from our sins and to help us live a life of righteousness. So Peter says was his aim. He's looking for a holy people. So we're changed from glory to glory as we behold Christ. The third answer I would give is the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This means that any situation you're in, just consider the past week. Any situation you were in in the past week, or think of the coming week, any situation you're in this week is designed by God for you to live for his glory. That's paramount. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for his glory because if he would look to put his glory anywhere else, it'd be idolatrous and blasphemous. He's not going to do that. He looks for us to live our lives for his glory. So in every situation we face, this is hard, It's not me that matters most. It's not you that matters most. Now, I like to joke around with my family members that we know who it's about, don't we? (laughs) Meaning it's about me. Because all too often, life is about me. You know what it's like to be talked to in a certain way or in a certain, certain instance takes place where you're disrespected. You know how you're grumbling in your heart. Who are they to respect me that way, disrespect me that way? What's going on with them? I can't believe they're... We know what it's like to have inner turmoil regarding something that takes place. God says, do everything for my glory. He's first. He's paramount. He's number one. So we live for his glory, whatever comes our way. Have you ever dug in? Did you ever dig your heels in? Because you're right. And, and when you're right, you, you can't back down when you're right. I recall uh, this was an unusual event is why I referenced years ago. Uh, because conflicts still happen and I would have more recent ones to give you. But happily, we haven't dug our heels in. But years ago, probably 20 years ago, we're still living in the same house. I recall a conflict Beth and I had where we each dug our heels in. It was like usually one of us caves quickly. Not this time. This time we're both thinking we're right. We're not not caving. No way. So it was like chilly for two days, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's like, I mean, how's that going to go anywhere? Um, Eventually, one of us finally broke through and realized that this was absurd and the chilly days ended. And uh, um, one of us did cave rightfully for the glory of God. Digging in seldom pays off in situations. So we're going to say more about what we actually do in a situation, but uh, digging in will rarely yield good fruit. So, so second point, how can we be a community of peace? We can readily understand why peace matters, right? The gospel gives us peace with God. The gospel bears that fruit in our lives, and the glory of God matters in every instance. Well, the text says something very important. 
Here's, here's the path to a community of peace. You've got to be on this path. The text calls us to love one another. It says, let your love be genuine. Notice this love is not earned somehow. We're not talking about a love that's earned. And notice love is not passive. It's not earned and it's not passive. In other words, we don't love someone because they did enough things right so that we can love them. That's not why we love. We love because of what Jesus did on the tree, which changed our hearts, and so we're living for him. Therefore, we love others. It's about him primarily. Love isn't earned. Love isn't passive. So verse 9 said, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection. Now, depending on what family you were raised in, that that might not be helpful. Because sometimes brothers really know how to go at it. Sometimes brothers, I've heard of accounts, this was not my own personal experience growing up. I was the oldest, then it was four girls after me, and then a brother finally, 10 years younger than me, and so my brother and I certainly didn't have fights and there wasn't anything of this kind. But I've heard accounts of families where brothers really go at it. Really, really butt heads. And that's not the brotherly affection we're talking about. Brotherly affection means I have warm regard for you because you're part of my family. Here in this church, you're family. It's not by blood unless we count the blood of Jesus. We're not related We're family. So the Bible speaks of brothers. We understand by that brothers and sisters. And so there's there's a sense of family where, where we're expected to be for one another because of that family nature. Love one another with brotherly affection. You can't have a community of peace without love. Love sacrifices self interest for the best interests of others. Philippians 2 was read earlier in worship, gets at this idea. It is is a joy we have and know to love others because of what Christ has done for us. So because of what Christ has done for us, we're interested in sacrificing for the sake of others. And I say again, it is possible that our reward is not obtained in this life. It's possible our reward is obtained on that final day. We sing a song about that living hope by Aaron Keyes and Stu Townen called Psalm 62. The lyric says, the fields of hope in which I sow are harvested in heaven. You are an American. In America, so you might be different. In America, we like things instant. We love instantaneous. We love fast. We love efficient. We love it. I mean, you put it in the microwave, you get it now. We want it quick. We want it fast. We don't like traffic jams. We, we just want everything fast and on our terms. When it comes to this area of love and peace, we're not, we're not talking that. We're talking possibly a lifetime lived where we reap that harvest in eternity. So we're set for the long haul. We're set with endurance. We're set with perseverance, which must have its way in us if we're to be mature. So it's hard to be an American and be mature. It's hard to be an American and be godly because of this instantaneous everything. 
Because the fields of hope in which we sow are harvested in heaven, this means love is never, ever wasted. The harvest is out there in eternity, which means that when we invest now, it's never a waste. We think that sometimes. At least I do. It's what's the use? What's the point? And as soon as I do that, what can you say about me? Here's what you can say. He forgot the gospel. Gospel's nowhere in his thinking. He's forgotten about eternity. Eternity's nowhere in his thinking. He's forgotten about God. God is nowhere in his thinking. Everything is right here, right now, in the horizontal moment. Right here, right now is all that matters. Right here, right now is going to go away. Right here, right now is going to burn up one day. Right here, right now is not what we are living for. We're living for that which is to come. So love is never, ever wasted. And this description of love, when I read Romans 12, there's just this general disposition internally where it just seems appropriate to repent. And 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, is much the same. You read these words and you think, Lord, have mercy. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. Here's the one that gets me. It does not insist on its own way. That line gets me. Because I'm aware of too often, I want my way. I I mean, my way makes the most sense. My way is the most right. I want it, and I want it now. Love does not insist on its own way. It's it's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. The one who seeks to love aims to cover an offense. The one who gossips does not love we can test ourselves. It's, so listen, it's hard, this is my opinion. Uh, it's hard to tell what is gossip and what isn't gossip. It's hard. I don't find it so simple, at least. Like if I'm, if I'm talking to, in my family, just, just bring it to my family. If I'm talking in my family to one of my sons about my daughter, is it gossip? Am I talk, it's just talking about somebody else gossip. I'd say, well, no. No, there's a news component there that's fine, Well, so in a local church, is it fine to talk about other people and have a news component? I think so. I think it's fine to share what's going on in folks' lives. But then then there's a line where, where it crosses over to, it isn't good news about that person. And so one good test is to think, would I say this in the same way if the person was sitting here? Because Proverbs 17, 9 says, whoever covers an offense seeks love. So here's what I can guarantee I can guarantee if you spend any time around the people in this church, you're going to come across offense. I can guarantee that. One of my pastor friends back in Harrisburg has a, has a, his church is called Living Water Community Church. On the website, they have a Living Water Church guarantee. And the, and when you click on the link on the website, uh, what it says is we can promise you if you come here, you'll be sinned against and you'll be offended. So just, Full disclosure, buyer beware. Uh, you come here, that's what's, that's what's going to happen. I'm saying that's the human condition. We can count on that here. We can guarantee it. Just hang with me some. If it hasn't happened yet, 
I can fix you right up. And you'll know exactly what, what we're talking about. Not intentionally. It just happens where offense comes. We seek to cover offenses. We do not seek to talk to others about it. So love is costly. Love costs. I have found in my life that at times humility is painful. I'm suggesting to you that love is also painful. It's costly. It's not always birds singing, sun shining, everybody wants to hug you. It's not like that. It's costly at times to live this life of love. So we follow Jesus and we take up our cross knowing that we aren't saving ourselves because we can't save ourselves. We're saved by faith alone. When we take up our cross, we're following in the example of Jesus. He is both Savior and an example to us. Love is costly because, because we're called to love imperfect people. In this church, there's just enough of you for me to say this confidently. If you're faithful, you interact with broken people with various issues. Because we all have issues. This is not, not a rocket scientist here. Call to love imperfect people because love isn't earned and love isn't passive. In this church, if you're faithful, you'll interact with broken people with various issues. Every single person, every single person listening is created in the image of God. And as one who's made in the image of God, we have a story to tell. And the story of lives can be overwhelmingly difficult and sorrowful. Life is hard because it's life in a fallen world. There are stories to tell. The stories can overwhelm. And there are honestly times where, like Job's friends, it seems like silence is the best response. Job's friends, if you remember, their best moment was seven days of silence. When they spoke, it was downhill from there for for Job's friends. Life is hard. So Chuck wrote in Toughest People to Love, said people are profoundly complex, both beautiful and broken, productive and paralyzed, fruitful and foolish. That's us. It's a good good description. It's the kind of people we're called to love, and as we're called to love this kind of person, we understand That's us also. That's me. That describes me. In our small groups, which are intended to be a safe place, we don't aim to fix people. We are not about fixing people. Rather, we aim to comfort people. We come alongside, we stand with, we pray with, we seek to comfort. In short, we love. It's it's all too easy. I've done this. And it disappoints me every time I've done it. It, It's all too easy to think, I've got all the answers for your situation. Right? I can tell you exactly what to do. This, 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 and this. Problem fixed. Problem solved. And then look at our own situations. Mine's really hard. Mine's tough. And your three quick steps don't help me at all because you don't understand how hard my situation is. I'm here to tell you, we all have hard situations in our life. And they're there for a purpose. 
They're there so that we learn endurance and perseverance in the Christian life, which must exist so that we become mature. There's no maturity apart from perseverance and endurance. Chuck Rode again says, we keep bringing in mechanics when what we need are gardeners. Mechanics fix it. They put on a new part, the car's good to go. Gardeners, gardeners bring in tender, loving care, carefully removing a weed, carefully preserving the plant so that something beautiful will emerge. That's the way we seek to work with one another and comfort one another. Love requires discernment because while perhaps the majority of people are easy to understand, there are those who are more difficult to love. We love them anyway. And I want to encourage you as a church. Ray Ortland taught us this at a pastor's conference. He said we give them the gospel. We want to be a safe place. And we give them time. Time's really important. The, the, thing, the thing is, we can often want to go to someone and talk to them. And we thought about it for two months. And then they're just supposed to get it right now. Like, because I'm the one talking to you, you should get this right now. We do this with our kids. Like, we think about something, talk to them, and then boom, drop it on them, and they're just supposed to get it. And, like, and you're not getting it, so you're rebellious. It's like, what's, what's wrong with some time? What's wrong with think about it a bit? Give it some time, and let's get back together. We don't need to be a mechanic. We need to be the gardener, as we're seeking to work with people. So as you interact with people, you're going to meet evil people. And now, by evil person, what I mean is someone who commits a very serious sin, as viewed by society or the word of God. You will come across evil people where perhaps there's a serious sexual sin taking place. You'll come upon the fool. You'll come upon the addict. And you'll come upon those with personality disorders Things like narcissism, borderline, obsessive compulsive, etc. You'll have difficult people who have real issues in their lives and they need love. So the question is, what do we do with those difficult people? Francis Schaeffer said, it's a true sign of the church. When true Christians love one another, the church is to be a loving church in a dying culture. And you know what happens Got to warn you of this. Sometimes we love. Sometimes we love in massive ways and then folks leave. Sometimes we spend ourselves and we pour out ourselves. We invest massively and people leave. And you know what that provides us with? That provides us with a moment to evaluate our motives regarding why we were doing what we were doing. Was it for King Jesus or was it for something I'm getting out of this? Was it something about me? Because what we're seeking to do is live with eternity in view so that we reap a harvest there. And so we seek to invest, we seek to love, but the results we leave in God's hands. So third, what do we do when conflict comes? It is, in my experience, a good thing when relationships are tested. Now, it doesn't mean I like this, but relationships that will be strong must be tested, must go through some fire, must go through some heat to know what's solid in the relationship. 
Conflict will come because we're imperfect people. We don't want to be. We want to follow Jesus and his example. We want to live a life of love. We think, that's glorious, living for eternity, affected by the gospel. I I want to be all about Jesus. But we know we fall short of that standard. We're grateful for forgiveness. But what do we do with people when this takes place? When we know an issue must be dealt with and we can't overlook it in love, We simply go to the person, whether one-on-one or, if appropriate, couple-to-couple. We don't take prayer requests first. We don't put it on Facebook. We We don't make it popularly known. We simply seek to go and work things out. It's even good to go if we sense things are off relationally. If it just seems like something seems to be missing, it's good to go. Because there's questions in your mind about where you are at with that person You go with questions, not charges. Like, things seem off to me. Does it seem that way to you? Are you good? Maybe maybe we're good. Uh, You have questions that you go with because you're not wanting to go with loaded charges. We don't assume we have the answers, but we do hope to be heard as we go. If there's sin in their life, we point it out graciously, carefully, lovingly. When confronted by another, we listen. We seek to understand And we know that we don't want to force or manipulate anyone because we're giving space and time. We're giving people time to think and time to pray and time to reflect. It's not about being instant. It is about seeking to love others for the glory of God. We're for one another. You know how easy it is to have it ending up that it seems like there's sides here. Like there's a line in the sand, and you're on one side, and I'm on the other. When we're there, we know things are amiss because we're all on the same team. There is a bad guy. There are bad ones. But but we have those enemies, uh, powers, principalities of darkness, they're called. We have enemies. but, But people in this church aren't like that. They aren't on that other side. And so... We want to acknowledge that we are for one another. But if there's sin, there may be a wedge in the relationship. And we need to be reconciled to one another. So we practice forgiveness. Forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. People can say, I forgive you. But you aren't yet reconciled. And here... I suggest we must be careful because if we're going to fulfill Romans 12, we must pursue reconciliation in the midst of practicing forgiveness. So so conflict happens. What do we do as we go to people? Well, I'm going to give a list where I want you to think in terms of big picture categories, not a clunky mechanical list where you must hit each one because... Because sometimes, with people we know and love, we can say, I'm sorry. And they'll say, oh, I forgive you. Even if you didn't say, would you please forgive me? They'll they'll say, I forgive you. And you move on. But here's something I've noticed over the years. Lots of times, people don't move on very well. Lots of times, the issue hangs around because lots of times, we're scorekeepers. We say, oh, I forgive you. And then, like, it happens again. Now, Jesus, I warn you, said seven times seven, meaning perfection times perfection, like unending. 
Seven times seven is 49. Peter tried to go there. You mean like 49 times, Lord? Seven times seven? Jesus, I know way beyond that. You and I, no doubt, know what it's like to be impatient with someone that can't get it. This is like the third time, the fourth time, and they aren't getting it. Here's what's amazing. God is patient with me and with you. And there's lots we haven't gotten. There's lots. And he loves us and he's patient with us. He coaches us toward the next step because he's for us. So, so these, this list is not clunky mechanical, but it's things I would encourage you to consider. So, so if you are acknowledging something, consider using biblical language. It makes a difference if you say, I was defensive, or if you say, I was arrogant. For me, at least, when I say I was defensive, it's like, oh, that sounds like a little problem. If I say I was arrogant, it's like, ooh, sounds like you have big issues. Um, And it's much in the same category. Use biblical language. Seek to acknowledge what you did. That's hard, because our pride is is ever lurking by, but seek to acknowledge what you did. Seek to acknowledge the effect on the other person. Lots of times we don't deal with the effect on the other person of our actions. And because we don't deal with that, that person is left hanging a bit. So they say, I forgive you. But they aren't able to practice biblical forgiveness, which we'll get to in just a moment. Then you could consider seeking to acknowledge what you should have done. If you're working this through with like a family member, like as a parent, if you're working this through with, with one of your kids, when you hear them say, here's what I should have done instead of what I did, now you know the lights are coming on. Like, oh, oh, they're starting to get it. But if they don't say that, then I'm not sure personally if they know or not. Then we ask for forgiveness. See, for many of us, we just want to start by asking for forgiveness. I was wrong, please forgive me, and let's put this behind us all quickly. Which is great for you, right? You're you're moving on. But that other person might be stuck there, and they think, oh, Jesus said forgive, so I've got to forgive. So, okay, I forgive you. But now they don't live in the good of forgiveness, they don't practice forgiveness, and therefore, reconciliation breaks down. So we ask for forgiveness, and then we share the gospel. Because when we talk about our sin, our hearts condemn us. They do. We know that was wrong, and what was I thinking? And we need to hear the gospel because we drift from the gospel. Essentially, you make going to someone an event over and against a hurried, I'm sorry, can we please move on quickly? These are the sorts of folks when we take shortcuts where folks stay stuck and they don't get over it and they don't practice forgiveness. Forgiveness means we practice what God in his infinite mercy gives us by grace. What God gives to me, I turn and extend to another if we're practicing forgiveness. Forgiveness means, and these are weighty words, these are, these, are, these are serious words. These are weighty words. Forgiveness means I won't hold this against you. 
I won't hold it against you. I won't bring it up again. And I won't tell others about this. You, maybe you would believe. I was going to say, you wouldn't believe how often when you sit down with a couple to counsel them, they are exceptional at confessing the sin of the spouse. And then give you this long list where you're supposed to see how evil and wicked this person is. And then the next step is that spouse says, oh yeah, well I've got a list on you. And so we run down this long list, we've got this long list, and basically they're each saying the other is a horrible person in some ways or in some actions. And of course they're right, they see it clearly, but the other person doesn't see it as clearly. And so you end up with this finger pointing taking place and you're thinking, how are we going to move on? You move on because somebody's a Christian. And somebody says, wait, let me examine myself. And let me pay close attention to my life. And let me see what I might have done. Tell me again about it. See, what we're inclined to do is put people on probation. We're, we're inclined to like, okay, I forgive you. I'm going to watch you now for a while. Just check in with me on a weekly basis or month. I'm going to see, do, do, do you get this right? Do you really understand what you've done? I want to make sure you've gotten it. And in this, it becomes easy to bring up the past again. When we're free in Christ, we aren't lugging the past around. The past is in the distance It's in the rearview mirror. We're living today. Today, says James, has enough trouble of its own. So we're living in today, not carrying suitcases around because we're not wired for that. Rather, we're enjoying the freedom we have in Christ because of the gospel. When AOR came and tried to help Sovereign Grace walk through their difficulties, AOR was impressed with Sovereign Grace. They they were amazed at the strength spirituality of folks, the vibrancy of life. But they pointed out one shortcoming. They were amazed that we did not proclaim the gospel to one another when we extended forgiveness. Now, they're Lutheran, and we're not, and so it felt clunky to us. You know, we don't like rules and regulations, and that felt a little formal. But they had a point. They had a point in that we forget the gospel, and so we seek to regularly come back to the gospel. And so I need to be reminding another person of the gospel and they need to be reminding me because it's so easy to drop into a horizontal existence where we are living by everything we see with our eyes. Everything right here matters now and we've lost sight of eternity, we've lost sight of Jesus, we've lost sight of the glory of God and we're just caring about this, this way. The gospel matters in our life and we have the privilege of demonstrating the gospel to others we forgive eagerly because God has forgiven us eagerly otherwise if we don't go the way of the gospel then what happens is this we make ourselves judge and jury I'm sure you've seen it happen a person decides they're judge and jury they have the decree the verdict they will render And they will issue. And if we go that path, well, Jesus told a parable in Matthew 18 where someone who had a massive debt, and that's each one of us, massive debt, that person turns 
and strangles a servant over a lesser debt. When you and I turn and seek to strangle a person over their sin against us, it, it is it is so light on the scales compared to all the sin in our life that we find ourselves in the position of the servant who had this large debt forgiven. But this dude goes after this servant and this lesser amount of money and strangles him, chokes him, thinking that he deserved to be repaid. That is not our position, brothers and sisters. We aren't owed. That isn't the position we find ourselves in. We want to live our lives for the glory of God. If we don't do that, we will find our fellowship with God is hindered, and we may easily find a bitter root growing in our heart that grows and consumes godliness. I'm not talking losing salvation. That's not the point at all talking our fellowship with God, the vibrancy of our Christian experience, lost sight of the gospel, and therefore we live in a very horizontal way. Let me close. Because I receive mercy from God and I have peace with God, my life, like yours, is changed. Therefore, I'm no longer eager for revenge or payback or holding things against others. No longer eager. Don't want to live my life that way. I'm sure you don't want to live your life that way either. God has set us free to love, to forgive, to care, to give the benefit of doubt, to listen, and to enjoy others because of what Christ has done for us. You and I are free. We're free, and so we have the joy of ministering Jesus to others. We minister the good news of Jesus to others. We proclaim Jesus Christ to present others mature in Christ. We love to talk about Jesus. What a joy to minister Jesus to others. The New Testament feels so strongly about this that Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 can actually say, I get this, he can actually say, why not rather be wrong? Now, in the U.S., in our legal, I mean, everybody sues everybody for whatever. Like, why not be wrong? Because I'm right, and it inconveniences me, and and you owe me. But that's that's not the good news of the gospel. So why not rather be wrong is the question the New Testament asks us about some situations. Hopefully. We not only avoid wars, riots, and fights, but we love one another genuinely, having brotherly affection for one another because God has been good to us as far as it depends.